Romans 15. Everyone okay this morning? Hope so. Y'all look good. Most of you, you look good. <laughs> so, we have listened to so many sermons this year on Romans, on the Apostle Paul, and I mean, how many sermons have you heard in your lifetime on the, about the Apostle Paul or a sermon from a, a Bible book he wrote? A lot of them, right? I mean, he wrote much of the New Testament, and so you've been throughout your life, if you've been in church very much, you've heard a lot of sermons about this man, and I know we did talk about him, we've talked about him throughout the study, but as I really dove into chapter 15 um, here at the last, latter part, and of course chapter 16 as well, we see a lot more about him and his ministry and, and some of the things, of course, we see in the book of Acts um, through his, his missionary journeys. But um, I wanted to talk this morning as we look at the text about um, his ministry. And um, before we dive into that, I want to give you just a few things about him. Most of you know these things. And so as I say these things, if you know them, you can give me a head nod so I'll know that you know some stuff. If you don't, just look at me like, you know, what? But I think y'all probably know most of this. But... He was an apostle. An apostle is one who is sent out, and uh, he was born in the early part of the first century. He was a Roman citizen, but also he was a Jew, right? We know that he was from the tribe of Benjamin. I see a few head nods. Uh, he was from the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Jew. He was circumcised according to the Jewish tradition. He was well-educated. I mean, he was a very smart guy, knew his stuff, and he became a Pharisee. Of course, we know them from a very negative connotation, right? Because Jesus had all these run-ins with these guys, and Paul was a part of that group. He was, a part, he was a Pharisee who believed in these strict Old Testament religious beliefs, and so did Paul, early on, did Paul, was he a believer in Jesus Christ? We know he was not, right? And he, he actually was anti-Christ, well, against Christ. He persecuted the church. As a matter of fact, in Acts chapter 8, where Stephen is being stoned to death, for Christ, Paul is there kind of overseeing that event. We know this man has another name. What's his other name? Do you know? Saul. Saul was his Hebrew name. Paul was his uh, Roman name, Greek name. And so either one's fine. But midway through Acts, Luke begins to call him Paul. And so that's what we do. I think some people have said uh, wrongly in the past that when God saved him, he changed his name. I don't believe that's true. I think Saul was his Hebrew name, Paul was his, his uh, Gentile name, if you will. And I think that's why Luke referred to him as Paul, because through the book of Acts, we see Paul goes out to minister to the Gentile specifically, outside there, outside of Jerusalem, outside of Israel, to others. And this letter, this amazing book of Romans, is a letter that he, um, that he had penned um, to these people in Rome. He had not yet been to see them, but his desire was to go and see these people and to minister to them and to be with them. And so he'd sent this letter to them. So what we're going to do, is we're going to look um, through these verses. And I'm going to kind of just read a few at a time, one or two at a time, and make our way through um, eight aspects of Paul's ministry. I told my wife this morning, I said, it's going to be a quick sermon. We just have eight points. And she was like, ugh, ugh, but we'll see what happens. Eight aspects, I actually found about 12 aspects, but I only, I'm only going to give you eight. 
so you feel you should feel better about yourself. You like that? Yeah. I just made that up. There's really just eight. I was trying to make you feel good. Eight aspects of Paul's ministry. If you're ready, shake your head. All right, here we go. Number one, it was an encouraging ministry. Look at verse 14. And I myself also am persuaded of you, my brethren, that ye also are, of, are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. That to me is an encouraging verse. He's encouraged as he has heard about their Christianity. He says three things there, right? Do you see the, th the three, three things? They're full of goodness, they are full of knowledge, and they're able to instruct or admonish or teach one another. As a pastor, I would say this to you. I would love to say, and, and any pastor would love to say this about their people, my church is full of goodness, filled with knowledge, and able to teach one another. I would say, too, by the way, that's a, this is not my notes, but that's a, a great sign that a church is growing. Listen to this. A sign a church is growing is not necessarily how many people are sitting in the building. A sign a church is growing is that people are not only teaching themselves, but can also teach or encourage or help others. In other words, we are getting so full of God's word that it overflows from us into other people's lives. And I think Paul knew that about these Romans, and I think he was encouraged, he was encouraged, and also he was encouraging to them. Now, did Paul also step on some toes when he wrote and preached? Absolutely. Sometimes he would get on people, rightly, but he also would also bring encouragement. Look, it's important for us to think about uh, this verse. I love the last part, that they are there to admonish one another. And we should be doing the same. As I said, if you are growing in Christ yourself, to me, everyone I've ever known who's truly growing in Christ, they cannot keep that bottled inside. It somehow, to some degree, it overflows like a cup overflowing with water, right? And it gets on stuff. It spills. Is your faith spilling on other people? Is it impacting other people? As he, as he wrote to them, and I was thinking about this book as a whole, we know we've studied, we've studied some deep truths here, particularly there in chapters 8 and 9, but a lot of this book is still basic Christianity. I think Paul would want to say to us this morning and say to those, those people in Rome, you know, continue to stick with the basics. Though he does teach deep truths, he wants us to remember these fundamental things and to live them out. Paul was thankful that these Roman Christians had received Christ and were full of goodness. And is that their own goodness? It's not because the Bible says there's none good. It was the goodness of God. They're filled with knowledge. Is it just their own knowledge? No, it's the knowledge of God. And now they're able to admonish one another. He had an encouraging ministry. Number two, he had an instructive ministry. Instructive. Look at verse 15. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written the more boldly unto you in some sort as putting you in mind because of the grace that is given me of God. This goes without saying, but... But he, the Bible is for us to learn. It instructs us. It helps us to know God better and know how we ought to live. If anyone wonders this morning, how am I to live? The Bible gives us our answer, right? I believe that. I believe it does. It tells us how to live, how to act, how to talk, how to treat our spouse, how to treat our children, how to treat our parents, how to deal with money, how to deal with 
your work, how, everything. The Bible in, gives us insight on everything. And so it's funny to me when people, I've heard people say this, like, you know, I love Jesus, but I just don't like reading the Bible. Or the Bible is just not for me. I've heard, I heard someone say that one time. The Bible is just not for me. And I was like, well, if the Bible is not for you, guess what? Jesus is not for you. Heaven is not for you. Forgiveness is not for you. And I'm not saying you have to love reading, but as Christians, we need to love the Word. This is God's Word. And so we must love it. We must desire it. We must have a desire for it if we're to be a, a Christian. It's a God-inspired inspired book, and we hold it to, to very high esteem, and we should. And people have died for this book. Do you know that? People have died to translate and to have it interpreted and translated so that we might have the copy we have today. And, and, and so we, we're thankful for the, the Word. Hope you never say that. Hope you never say, well, the Bible's not for me. <laughs> if you do, keep it yourself. But he wrote here, as I read in verse 15, he said, I wrote boldly to you in some sort as to put you in mind or, watch this, to remind you of things, to give you reminders. Do y'all do like to have reminders? Do you know when reminders are needed? Or do you know when reminders are good to give before they're needed? It's like you're in the shower and you slip and fall and your spouse goes, hey, it's slippery, be careful. I already fell. Thanks a lot. Or you get the ticket, and the cop's like, hey, slow down. I'm like, you should have told me that 10 minutes ago, buddy. You just give me a ticket. That actually happened, I know. But reminders are only useful if they're given before you need them, right? And Paul, and the Bible itself, is a reminder. I thought about my wife as a teacher. As a first-grade teacher, she gives reminders every single day, right? Teachers, every single day, and she probably gets sick of it. The same reminders over and over again. Why does she give these kids reminders every day? Well, maybe they forgot. They're forgetful. Maybe they're distracted by things. Maybe they are just defiant. That's probably one too, right? Yeah, teacher's shaking their head. But watch this. As Christians, as people, sometimes we forget things. Sometimes we're distracted by life. Sometimes we're defiant toward God's word. And so we need constant reminders of who God is, who Christ is, how to live, and where do we get those reminders? Are you going to flip on TV and find good reminders of how to live for Christ? Very rarely. Are you going to get on Facebook and find, you can on Facebook, some people post good scriptures and stuff. The place to have the reminders we need to follow Christ as best we can is the word, and especially the word in the context of the church. Tony, on Wednesday nights, we have amazing, I think they're amazing, discussions back here on the Word. And every time I leave, I'm encouraged more and more about the Word. And so we need to be around the Word for reminders. His ministry was encouraging. Paul's ministry was ins very instructive. Number three, it was specific. Verse 16, he said, I've written to you that, that I should be the minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering up of the Gentiles might be acceptable, being sanctified by the Holy Ghost. His ministry was very specific. He specifically shared the gospel of Christ. That's a specific message. And he had a specific activity, which was to go to the Gentiles. But one thing I find interesting in this passage is how he says the word minister there twice. And it literally means to be a priest. What did the Old Testament priests do? They had several things. What did they do? One of the main things they did was to help uh, with the sacrifice of animals, right? 
and so they did their sacrifices. We know Jesus, the Bible says, is our great high priest who was our sacrifice and our intercessor between us and God. And Paul says here, very, very, um, if, you, if you interpret that out, he was a priest of the gospel of God. He was sacrificial in his, in his living and in his sharing of this gospel. His goal was to be a, a minister. His calling was to be a, a minister. And it was specific here also in his goal, which was to reach the Gentiles. He, he desired those Gentiles to be acceptable unto God. Does that phrase sound familiar to you? To be acceptable unto God? Flip back to Romans 12 real quick. If you have your Bible there, flip to Romans 12. As soon as I was thinking about verse 16, that the offering up of the Gentiles might be acceptable to God, I had to go back to chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and what? Acceptable unto God, which is a reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Paul wanted those people he ministered to not only to get saved, you see me? Not only just to get saved, but to grow in Christ that they might be acceptable. Look at the next word there, being sanctified, set apart, holy. It is never going to be, it should never be our goal here that people only come to Christ for salvation and never grow any further, right? Our goal is that people would come to Christ in salvation and then grow into maturity in Christ. It's our goal. It's our desire. That's what we pray for. That's what we minister for. Let's look at a fourth aspect of his ministry as I move on here. The fourth one, and I love this one, it was Christ-centered. Look at verse 17. I have therefore whereof I may glory through Jesus Christ in those things which pertain to God. Another way that he could say that here is, I have reason to be very proud of the work God has done through me. I can boast, I can brag, God has done great work through me. But is Paul boasting in himself or is he boasting in Christ? Christ, right? As I, as I studied this verse, I was thinking about there's some Christians who brag about what they do for God. I've heard it. I may, have, I may have done it before, probably have. But if we're going to brag, it should be about what God has done, not what we've done. Some churches promote themselves. They spend thousands of dollars and much effort promoting themselves in all their different ministries. And sometimes that overshadows their preaching of the gospel of Christ. If we're going to promote something, first and foremost, it needs to be Christ. If we're going to shine a light on something, first and foremost, let it be Him. The gospel of Christ is what changes lives, Romans 1.16. How about this? Some pastors boast. I've heard pastors boast about their knowledge, about how many degrees they have, about how much success they have, how many people attend their church. As pastors, if we're going to boast... Let it be in Christ and Him alone, not in our accolades, I guess you could say. Any Christian, any church, any pastor who neglects the gospel to boast in themselves should be rebuked and corrected. And I would encourage you to steer clear of any ministry that promotes itself more than Christ. All that to say, 
the Apostle Paul was thoroughly Christ-centered. We need to be thoroughly Christ-centered as a church. There are other things we can do. There's ministries we can do. There's service projects we can do. There's mission things we can do. But all that needs to be focused around Jesus. By the way, you can tell if someone's Christ-centered. Listen to them talk and watch how they act. That's it. How people talk and how they act will show you if they are Christ-centered or not. It's not easy to hide, I don't believe. Look at verse 18. For I will dare not speak of any of those things which Christ hath not wrought by me to make the Gentiles obedient by word and deed. Again, he says there, I'm not even going to speak about things unless Christ has done them through me. Christ, again, gets the glory. Christ gets the shine. And if he is, Paul led so many people to Christ, started so many churches, and he points the glory to God. May our ministry, may our lives be Christ-honoring. We need to honor Christ in our singing, our praying, our preaching, the way we treat each other. We need to honor Christ in all these things. Number five, this ministry was effective. Verse 19. Through mighty signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about unto Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. That phrase kind of blows me away. That he is, he says that I have fully preached the gospel. I have fulfilled my ministry in a sense. I have, I mean, that's, that's pretty amazing because I feel like so often I have not fulfilled my ministry. I feel like there's other people I need to share Christ with. There's other things I need to do for, for the gospel. And Paul here is just showing that God through him has made an effective ministry. Paul understood his calling and he was busy about accomplishing his calling. He was traveling around fulfilling the ministry, and it was an effective ministry. Number six, it was foundational. Paul did not want to build on other people's um, stuff. That's not a good word. Let's just read the verse. Look at verse 20. Yea, so I have I strived to preach the gospel not where Christ was named, lest I should build upon another man's foundation. But as it is written, to whom he was not spoken of, they shall see, and they that have not heard shall understand. You see, again, I think this is a very beautiful, challenging call that Paul had to go. Can you imagine that, going to preach the gospel where people may not know about Jesus or know anything about him? That's pretty, you know, we don't really have that here as much, but there are parts in this world today that don't know about Jesus, don't have the Bible. And we call those, usually we call those frontier missionaries. But Paul did that he went to places that either didn't know about christ or were antagonistic toward christ he would go and that's why he would often be you know ridiculed and persecuted uh in in those different areas but paul did that and he was very serious about it and and it shows us that his ministry was a again a foundational one that other people would come and kind of build on let me ask you this is it wrong though to preach in places where Christ has already been named? Is that wrong? It's not. Remember 1 Corinthians 3, 6? He says, Paul says, I planted, Apollos did what? Watered, and then God gave the growth. Some people, I think, are kind of gifted at the planting aspect. Some people more gifted at the watering aspect. And some people, well, God is gifted at the growth aspect. 
I've always felt like me personally that my ministry is more of a watering ministry to help encourage people to grow. But Paul was especially called to be a frontier missionary. Verse 21 is a reference back to Isaiah 52, just uh, prophesying about this uh, ministry of Paul. He was very effective. Why has Paul not yet visited Rome when he wrote this? Because he was very busy with his effective foundational ministry. Verse 22, but now, I'm sorry, for which cause also I have been much hindered from coming to you. Number seven, Paul's ministry, are y'all still with me? All right, Paul's ministry was collaborative, collaborative. Look at verse 23, but now having no more place in these parts and having a desire these many years to come unto you. He wants to come see these people. He wants to minister to them. He wants them to minister to him, and he's yet to be able to do that. One reason is because he's been so busy, again, with his ministry. Look at verse 24. Whensoever I take my journey into Spain, I will come to you. So his plan is to travel um, to Spain, and then from there, on the way to Spain, go through and stop in Rome for a visit. That's his plan, okay? He says, for I trust to see you in my journey and to be brought on my way thitherward by you, if first I be somewhat filled with your company. Again, I hope you see in these verses, and we'll see it in the rest of the verses and in chapter 16, that Paul was not a lone ranger ministry. Paul had other people with him, and you're gonna, he's going to name them, some of them in chapter 16. And it, again, it just shows us the importance of togetherness for the gospel. We talked about that last week. We must be together. We talked about this on Wednesday night as well. Uh, a church that's, a, 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 if we're united, we will stand. If we're divided, what? We will fall. And we need to do whatever we can to promote the unity of the, the church. Let's keep reading. 25. But now I go to Jerusalem to minister unto the saints. So instead of going to Spain and stopping through Rome, he's going back to Jerusalem. He says, For it hath pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor saints which are at Jerusalem. And so these Gentile churches who've come to Christ have heard about some of the poor believers back in Jerusalem, and they want to give offerings. It's, it's kind of like it's mission giving. It's spreading the love. And, and so Paul is helping take that money back and forth. Verse 27 it hath pleased them verily, and their debtors they are. For if the Gentiles have been made partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister unto them in carnal things. In other words, if the gospel of Christ has reached them, now they must give uh, back and just be a helpful with offerings. Verse 28, When therefore I have performed this, and have sealed to them this fruit, I will come by you into Spain. Again, going to come to Spain, and we'll stop by in Rome, verse 29. And I am sure that when I come unto you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. We'll talk more about this next time. He had a desire to be with people and to minister with people, and, and it, it clearly worked out. But let's move to our final point. Look at verse 30. Now I beseech you, brethren, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake and for the love of the Spirit that ye strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. 
By the way, do you see the Trinity in that verse? He's actually, if you've been, you may not have caught it. You ever watch TV shows or movies where they put little, what do they call them, Easter eggs in the movies or the TV shows? Things that, he's, he's dripping the Trinity throughout this text. If you go back and look at it. He's talking about prayers to God for Christ's sake, for love of the Spirit. And so you can see that his Trinitarian beliefs here. But as I read verse 30, I focus on the last phrase, that you strive together with me in your prayers. And I say this, Paul's ministry was a prayerful one. What, uh, what preacher do I quote more than any other preacher on Sunday morning? Just say it, you can say it. Yeah, Spurgeon, right? And I'm probably not alone in that. I think a lot of preachers quote Spurgeon. He was called the Prince of Preachers. He preached in the 1800s in London. This kind of big dude with this awesome beard. He smoked cigars. He was just a really cool guy in his day. And, uh, but he would preach, and I mean, thousands would come. I mean, sheep, you know, people would come here and preach. And, um, but the story's often told that the church really helped him become who he was by their encouragement and by their prayers. And so when people would go to visit the church, and you've probably heard this before, when visitors would come to Spurgeon's church, he would always take them to the basement. And they're like, what are we doing? They would ask him this, why is your church, Mr. Spurgeon, why is your church so successful? Why is your ministry so effective? He would take them to the basement, and open a door, and there would be people praying there. And like, this is not just Sunday morning. This is like all different times of the week. People would be in there praying. He would come to the church building, go in this basement room, and cry and pray with all their hearts to the Lord for the pastor and for the church and for you know, others. And Spurgeon would open the door and tell people, this is the powerhouse of the church. Pretty good, right? This is the powerhouse of the church. And the Apostle Paul says, I beg you, verse 30, I appeal to you, I beseech you, I urge you, strive together. That word, that phrase there means to agonize together. To agonize. This is not just like, now lay me down to sleep or... You know, what's the, what do you pray before you eat? Good food, good meat, you know, whatever. This is serious, sincere, agonizing prayer to the Lord. Spirit-led prayer, and the Apostle Paul is requesting that they pray for him. Would you agree with me that individually and as churches, not just our church, but churches, there is reason to be convicted and concerned about prayer. Would you agree with that? I don't know because I've never heard many stories recently of many people that would say, I have a very powerful prayer life. Some probably do. I hope you do. If you do, please share that with me. But I remember 20 years ago, I would see and hear more about that. And I say that because you could just hear the way people prayed, right? And you could see their lives. But I'm convicted about my prayer life and your prayer life and our prayer life. Do we pray? Do we pray enough? Do we pray in the Spirit in the name of Jesus? Do we pray rightly or amiss, as the Bible says? How sincere are our prayers? How 
I mean, do we really believe in prayer? Kind of a crazy question for us in church, but if we really believe God is in heaven and can do all things and wants what's best for us, should not we pray about the things that we worry about? Yeah. If you want to see someone come to Jesus and you're not praying for them, do you really want to see them come to Jesus? If you want to see your church grow, but you're not praying for the church to grow, do you really want to see the church grow? Whatever it is in your life, are we praying? I don't know who might be hearing this right now and be convicted, but I want to tell you, we need more prayer in our church. We have some singers. We could always take more. We have some teachers. We could always take more. And we have some prayers, but we could always take more. And that doesn't mean you just have to pray publicly, although that's good, but I mean, is there some of you who will say, you know what, I'm going to start getting here a few minutes early every Sunday morning and making a room back there and just praying. Or before I leave the house or on my drive here, I'm just going to make sure I sincerely pray for the church. Is there some people that would say, you know what, prayer is going to be my ministry. We have ministries for everything else. We should have a prayer ministry. Who will say, I'm going to be that person. I'm going to be the person who prays for our church. If no one else does, I'm going to be praying. That is a needed ministry in our church. I need your prayers. I mean, look at this verse. The Apostle Paul, who wrote much of our New Testament, who planted all these churches, who won many people to the Lord, who was bold enough, by the way, to speak to kings and emperors about Jesus and suffer for the name of Christ and saw miracles done, this Paul wrote to these people he had never met and said, I desperately need you to pray for me. If he needs prayers, I definitely need prayers, right? And we all do. How much more do we need to pray for one another and for things in the church? Verse 31, he's specific about his prayers here. As we conclude our text here, he says, Pray that I may be delivered from them that do not believe in Judea. Right? So he's got people that, you know, they want to take his life or imprison him. And he says that my service which I have for Jerusalem may be accepted of the saints, that I may come unto you with joy by the will of God, and may with you be refreshed. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Did the Apostle Paul finish his trip to Jerusalem and then head back to Spain and stop in Rome and was he refreshed by the people and just had a great time? Y'all know the answer to that question? Did he do it? Well, he went to Rome, but not that way. He didn't go as the, um, how, do, how do I put this in my notes here? He did not go to Rome as the free preacher. He went as a prisoner. But he went. <laughs> and he was still able in some way to minister to them, but he was not free at that time. And it's there that later he would eventually die as a martyr. And so sometimes, this is a side note, right? Sometimes we have plans, but God makes other plans, right? Here's my question. When Paul lost his life, did his ministry end? One of my very favorite verses 
um, is when Paul said this, for me to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. And he went to be with the Lord and his ministry continued through the people he reached, the churches he planted. As we read and study Romans, a book that he had, the Lord led through him, um, his ministry still impacts our lives today. But I wonder if he would like to hear us say it that way. Probably not, right? He would probably want us to say, give God the glory. Or in his own words, he would say this. Know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 1 Corinthians 2, 2. Or 1 Corinthians 1, 31, he might tell us this. If you're going to boast, boast in the Lord. Let's make sure we follow the the pattern of the ministry of Paul as we give glory to God for anything he might do in our lives. Application, conclusion here. Answer this out loud for me. Did God work in Paul's life? How do we know? He was a man of faith. He was a man of obedience, humility, love, desire for God. God worked in his life. That's obvious, right? Was God working? Did God work in the lives of the Christians at Rome? Yes or no? Yes. Of course. We see, back to verse 14, they're full of goodness and knowledge. They're admonishing one another. We see back in chapter 1, verse 5, that um, he's thankful for what God has done. Um, the word of their faith had spread through the world, and he had heard about it. He's thankful for it. We see that in chapter 1. Finally, is God working in your life? That's a good question to ask before we leave this morning. I mean, we know he worked in Paul's life. We know he worked in the Christians in Rome's lives. But what to you, it should be important today to ask this question. Is God working in my life? Or am I just kind of coasting by? Am I just getting through on what I've known in the past or what I've done in the past? Or am I truly saying, God, please do a work in me. Prepare me, as we sang, right, to be a sanctuary. In my life, Lord, be glorified. Are we just singing those words or are we asking God to put those words in us? Let me give you some ways to know. This is the last thing. Here's some ways to know that God is working in your life. First, you come to realize life is not all about you. If you still think this morning life is all about you, then God's probably not, I would imagine, working in your life. Because, right, there's a sense of that humility and understanding, whoa, it's not about me anymore when we come to know God. Another thing is a desire to serve others. If your desire is only to be served, never to serve others, then God may not be working in your life. If you sense this desire to serve others, God may be working in your life. Another one is a desire for the Bible and for prayer. God gives his people, I believe this, a desire to know him, and that knowing him comes through his word. Get into that word. Get into the word until the word gets into you. Another way to know God might be working in your life is a desire to be around other believers. Is that, do you believe that? I mean, the scripture says it. See it in 1 John. You know, you know, people say, I can just, I'm going to be a Christian, but I'm just not going to go to church. I'm going to be a Christian, but I can be a Christian just as well over here. But the Bible tells us so many commands we can't do unless we're connected with other believers. Not only that, it's good for us okay, to be around other believers. Next, this, these get a little tougher, I think, especially this one. A way to know God's working in your life is an, an ongoing hatred for sin. I mean, if you just accept sin or like it all the time or joyful about it or 
celebrate sin, which our world does today, um, that may be a sign God's not working in your life. But if God's doing a work in us, watch this, we begin, if God is working in you, you begin to love the things God loves and hate the things God hates. Right? And may God help us to just embrace that, to love what he loves and hate what he hates. There should be this, that doesn't mean we're sinless, right? We still sin, but there should be a battle when you sin that you don't feel good about it, that you struggle with it, that you need to repent of it. We need that. Another one here is a desire for other people to know God. It might have been Spurgeon who, I think it might have been Spurgeon who said, if you don't desire for other people to know God, you don't know him yourself. We have a desire for other people to know him. Finally here, the last one I wrote was a sense of God's leading in your life. I imagine most of you in this room do have that this morning. But a sense that God is kind of directing and leading and guiding you through this life. Look at that list one last time. And answer the question to yourself, is God working in your life? If you can say yes, amen, amen, keep going. If you say, he's not working like I want him to or I'm just not sure. Two things. First, look to Christ. He is our salvation. He is our sanctification. He guides us. He leads us. Secondly, let this church be a help to you. Let it be a help. Let this church pray for you. Let this church serve you. Let this church teach you, not just me, but others from week to week. Let's pray.